it's been a while since I've done an episode of Catholicism 101, which isn't a series meant to teach the basic elements of the faith, so much as to address certain timely errors that are common in the broader culture. In fact, I've actually only done one episode of this prior today. It was on papal infallibility. A link to that is in the pinned comment. What we'll be covering will be done so in a relatively straightforward manner, without turning towards complex concepts of theology or philosophy. You know, that's actually one of the many beautiful things about the faith. It can be understood and lived fully without complex training, although complex training is useful as well. Today's topic, the sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance. I've been meaning to do this one for a while, because I frequently mention them in videos that the world and worldly elements within the church celebrate a certain class of sins, which the Bible classifies as crying out to heaven for vengeance. Today, we'll go over the sins that are classified scripturally in this way. First, let's start with the basic. Mortal sin. Practicing Catholics generally have at least a passing familiarity with the concept of mortal sin. That is, sins that kill the soul, which the faith requires us to go to the priest for forgiveness as is said in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. The various mortal sins are the ones so bad that they will lead to the sinner to going to hell if he does not repent of the sin and seek absolution, and of course, the part people tend to forget, to, to have the intention to cease sinning. I know, this is basic stuff, but the sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance go beyond this. They require divine intervention for justice, for they beg for God's wrath as the victims cry out to heaven. This is, again, serious stuff and worth meditating upon. The sins that cry to heaven are particular mortal sins that are so evil that they, as I just said, require the justice of God. They are murder, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, sodomy, Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 to 21, oppression of the poor, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, and defrauding the workers of their just wage, James chapter 5, verse 4. There are also other scriptural references that I'll be using for this. We will go over these in brief individually. Often you see these described in various ways. There are other serious sins that are explicitly banned for a variety of reasons, but these are especially heinous sins. One thing I found chilling when preparing this video is how they are not only common in the Western world today, but are actually almost enshrined in the language of rights and protected by the legal system. That should give everyone pause when understanding the moral decay we are all living through in the Western world at this moment. The first of these sins is murder, which seems obvious. The scriptural roots of the gravity of this sin is found again in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I'm not going to waste my time explaining why murder is wrong. I mean, if you can't figure it out, then you may need a high school ethics course. Now, murder includes abortion, euthanasia, and similar forms of killing. It does not include a justly applied capital punishment, which the church has always defended, at least until the reign of Francis the wiser than all preceding pontiffs, first of his name. Be that as it may, murder is a sin that cries out to heaven for vengeance, and it is protected in the Western world as a fundamental human right as long as the victim is a child still in the womb, who has been denied their humanity. Perhaps I'm being hyperbolic in my definition of this sin, but I don't think I am being anything other than applying basic Catholic morality to a situation in the contemporary world that is a hot-button political issue. But again, I could be wrong. 
I'm no theologian, and I'm definitely not infallible. On to a sin that is more popular than you might think. One that is practiced by many more people than the people we label with a name derived from that sin. And that sin is sodomy. Sometimes you see this sin is wrapped up in other sins. It is in vogue today to downplay what has always been called sodomy. In the following passage of scripture, we see the other sins that crowd to heaven listed among the sins of Sodom. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them as you have seen. Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 49 to 50. If this is a lesson in anything, it is that these sins tend to be found together. But the book of Jude tells us what the real sin of Sodom was, the sin that earned the, name the, earned the namesake of the city. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. See Jude chapter 1 verse 7. Again, this is serious stuff. The church always defined what the sin of Sodom was. No, there is not an explicit definition of this sin, but the church always defined it in terms of sexual activities that are unnatural and sterile by their very nature. If you want to get more explicit, I'm sure you can find definitions online that fit that bill. But you know a particular sexual act that I'm referring to, though other sexual acts that are considered normal may fit this bill as well, acts that many married couples engage in and find to be harmless. A good rule of thumb is that marriage is not a license to engage in perversion, even if the culture says that these acts are not only not perverse, but actually a good substitute for the marital act during courtship or dating. Maybe you can get what I'm hinting at. If not, I'm sure someone in the comments will happily help you out here. Of course, there will probably be people in the comments calling me a fuddy-duddy, but, you know, be that as it may. The next is the oppression of the poor. The church has always had a preferential option for the poor. It sounds like a concept of modernism, and that phrasing might be a more recent way of describing this, but the church has always had a preferential treatment for the poor in matters pertaining to society and justice. It is a hard pill to swallow in our day, especially when the definition of poverty is fluid in an age of technological and dietary luxury. The scriptural reference for this are the following lines from sacred scripture. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. That is Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 to 23. And the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their enslavement went up to God. That's Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. So what does oppression of the poor mean? Generally, it means making life more difficult for the poor, removing any social or political privileges they have that permit them to alleviate their suffering, or enacting laws that punish the poor, among other acts. One example is a strange law you see in some self-described progressive cities where it is now illegal to give food to the homeless without a license. Yes, in some places you cannot give the sandwich you made at home for your own lunch to a homeless person unless you have a food handler's card and a professional kitchen to prepare the food in. It's madness and deeply sinful, regardless of the intent of the law, which they say is to prevent the homeless from getting sick from ill-prepared food, or, more likely, to prevent the city from becoming a destination resort for the homeless. Cities like Los Angeles or Portland, Oregon have become just that. Also, this category of sin covers the exploitation of the poor, which can include a great many things including pornography, institutionalized gambling, 
government programs that are sold as assisting the poor, but in reality shackle them to a life lived on the government dole with no real means of escape, or other practices widely accepted by society as morally neutral, or even good that in reality target the poor and exploit them for the, for the gain of others. Finally, we have defrauding the worker of his wages. This one should be pretty straightforward. Here's a scriptural reference. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset, because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 to 15. And, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. That is from James chapter 5, verse 4. Now, this does not mean that employers must pay their employees on a daily basis. It means that workers are to be paid justly and in a timely manner. Daily, weekly, even monthly payments are fine. It's the payment when agreed upon that is important. But what is really as important is that this is a warning against defrauding the worker of his wages, as well as against taking advantage of their desperation to exploit them. We've all heard stories of employees not being paid for their work. This prohibition is actually enshrined into law in the U.S. and in other places, at least the defrauding part. Yes, it is illegal to defraud workers of their wages. It's illegal because the Western world is in love with contract law and the legal enforcement of said contracts. However, contracted work can still lead to defrauding of wages or the oppression of the poor when people in desperate situations are taken advantage of and offered subpar wages and working conditions. I'm reminded of the Great Recession, when the new jobs that were created at the start of the so-called recovery were service sector jobs that paid 20% or worse of the jobs that were most of the affected people had lost. That can be covered by this sin. Sin is sin, regardless of how much avoiding sin may inconvenience us. It is why I caution against adopting political labels that are widely used in the Western world today, for at the root is some form of sin that is hard to avoid and still be ideologically pure in the eyes of those who share your political views. Anyway, those are the sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance. When you next hear me use the term in a video or see someone else use the term, you'll have a basic understanding of what that term means. Each of these has complex theology behind them, but, again, that knowing that isn't essential to knowing what the sins in question are and why they are sins. I hope you found this useful. Thanks for listening. Ave Maria.